Okay, here I am. I am hunting in bear forest. That's a pasture that's on the north part of our property. And I just harvested a beautiful 80 pound wild boar. Um, I've been tracking this animal for the last couple days and I just had a hunch that it was bedding in a thick brushy area on the property. And at first light, I came out here and I was waiting and I made a little bit too much noise and the entire sounder of pigs scattered, but I got lucky and this pig popped its head up to try to identify me, see what was going on. And I shot and it dropped. And here I am looking at its body. And the reason that I'm here is because I want to open up the cavity, open up the abdomen, get into the stomach and see what this pig has been eating. All right, so this type of butchery is called field processing. And I've opened up the abdomen and eviscerated this animal into the field um, before I take the meat and pack it out, bring it home, package it. Anyways, I'm cutting into the stomach. I've identified it and holy shit, this is exactly what I was expecting to find, but also what I was afraid I was going to find. There are turkey eggs in this. We raise turkeys. It's spring. All the hens in our area, the wild hens are sitting on their clutches of eggs. It's very easy to identify these eggs because they're spotted. They're thick membrane. Um, they're like porcelain in texture. And as I sift through this, there's also indication of baby turkeys that this animal has eaten. There's obviously what looks to be some kind of roots, some kind of maybe mesquite pods. Good nitrogen fixing legume. Also a good protein source. It's plentiful right now. Um, there's lots of things that look like spaghetti and um, those are earthworms. It uh, it eats earthworms. This thing has been eating a lot of earthworms. I didn't even know we had this many earthworms out here. And this is mm, concerning, but also surprising because, again, I, <laughs> I feel thankful that we have this many earthworms in the ground. But I'm also horrified that what this feels like, there might be 100 earthworms in this pig's stomach. So, man, it's been eating a little bit of everything. This pig is definitely um, has not been sustaining its life with a vegetarian fed diet. <laughs> That's just a myth. That is just a domesticated industrial pig. That's removed from its native environment, its biological environment, not allowed to consume the diverse omnivore selection that a pig in the wild would prefer. And by the looks of it, this pig preferred um, living organisms over plants. Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to how regenerative agriculture can nourish our bodies, rebuild our soil, and restore our future. 
Hey everyone, this is Taylor Collins and you are listening to Where Hope Grows. This podcast is made possible by the support of Force of Nature, Rome Ranch, and of course, the grace and beauty of Mother Nature. Hey friends, so glad that you're listening to this story because what I'm about to tell you is absolutely wild. This particular story is hog wild. And I say that with both respect and disdain for wild pigs. And we're going to talk about that today. We are going on a journey with wild pigs. We're going to root deep, deep into the soil on this topic. And we're going to talk about where they came from, their impact on our ecosystems in North America. We're going to discuss the different solutions to managing this invasive species and controlling the population. And lastly, let's eat one. Let's talk about the flavor. Let's celebrate the life-giving, nourishing force of these 100% wild, free-range pigs. All right, so to kick this story off, Let's get something straight, friends. There is no such thing as a native pig in North America. And I know that is shocking. Truly, it, it's so unassuming with the prevalence of pigs and the legacy and the history of pigs as sustaining pioneer families and those on the frontier. It just feels like pigs are so American. So while there is significant historical context for wild pigs in the United States, they still should not be here. They were originally brought over by European settlers. Specifically, Hernando de Soto was the first Spanish explorer known to have brought pigs into the United States in as early as 1539. As the successive waves of Europeans came to the United States, they also brought pigs with them. Pigs from Europe. These were farm pigs. These were domesticated pigs that these pioneer settlers relied upon for a source of nourishment and life-sustaining energy. Now, despite the early pioneers' best attempts to contain these pigs on their farms or in their towns, inevitably, these animals wandered off. And as they entered the wild, many of them decided they enjoyed this life. Not only did they survive, but they actually thrived. And interestingly enough, when a domesticated pig enters the wild, it changes. It changes on a physiological level. Whereas in as little as a few months, the pig will physically change. Tusks start to develop in the pig's mouth the hair on its body becomes thicker and the actual attitude of the pig, well, it becomes way more aggressive. Now, these environmental adaptations help the pig survive in the wild. This transformation is so dramatic that it's as if Bill Gates with his beta body, nice, plump, tender, supple, transforms into Jean-Claude Van Damme back in his prime days where he could spin kick and knock your head off. And because these pigs are so effective at breeding, as well as the fact that the apex predators that once dominated the landscapes of North America have in large been removed, the checks and balances of population control 
have not applied to this species. Those escaped pigs are now estimated to be 6.5 to 9 million animals in the wild. And over half those pigs reside in the great state of Texas. And what was once a small regional problem has quickly scaled to become a large national emergency. Collectively, these pigs are causing billions of dollars of damage annually to agricultural lands in the United States of America. And when you start to quantify the ecological damage of these pigs, that's where things get even more alarming. Just a handful of the negative consequences of wild pigs on ecosystems include the degradation of our topsoil, the mining of our nutrients and minerals from soil, the displacement of native desirable species, the actual predation on native desirable species, the erosion of riparian areas, which lead to water quality issues. And then even more alarmingly, through their rooting behavior, these pigs actually release stored carbon from the soil and cycle it back into the atmosphere. In attempts to better understand the scale of this carbon emission, the University of Queensland released a study in July of 2021 where they monitored pigs globally, different ecosystems, and they concluded that wild pigs are releasing around 4.9 million metric tons of carbon dioxide annually across the globe. Now that's equivalent to the emissions of 1.1 million cars. So let's pause here and clarify two things. First, I hope I didn't offend any domesticated pigs or wild pigs by comparing them to Bill Gates and his very soft bod. I just think he would make a wonderful pillow. Second, this is a massive problem and it requires a massive solution, but there's no clear solution. So this is where we're going to have to get creative. This is where we're going to have to think outside the box. This is where we're going to have to look into Mother Nature for guidance, for wisdom, for grace, ask for forgiveness. And this is where hope grows. And now our story begins. All right, I'm here with my friend my co-founder, the CEO of Force of Nature, Robert Sanson. I call him Robbie. Well, what's your full name, sir? It is Robert Kasparis Sansom. Kasparis. That's your middle name. That is. It feels well, odd to say your formal, formal name in full. Why do you not go by your middle name as your first name? It's, it's incredible. My dad actually does. Really? Oh, he does. I just always call him Cass. Yeah. His, his real name is George. Oh my, my, you see, your dad knows what's up. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm really happy to be here with Robbie in the force of nature headquarters in Austin, Texas. I couldn't think of anyone better to dive deep into this story with, because I actually did my first wild boar hunt with Robbie on his least hunting land in Lano. You remember that? I do. I do. That was a lot of fun. That was incredible. This was the first time I had ever seen a wild pig and we actually successfully harvested one. After like two, two different sittings, I mean, it took a couple days. We had to iterate and change our game plan because those things are so freaking smart. But we we're successful, of course, because you're an apex predator. Um, okay, Robbie, tell me a little bit about wild pigs. Can you just go over the scope of the issue, the scope of the problem? Why are we in this situation today? You know, I think it's a combination of things from the rate at which they're expanding 
and relative to the impact that they have on the land, right? And, and a good example of that would be where you and I went in Lano to go hunting, right? When we started on that lease 20 years ago, we didn't see pigs. In fact, I remember being like, man, it sucks. Like, I'd love to hunt and shoot pig. They're really good, you know, yada, yada. And then now, I mean, they are everywhere. You can't get rid of them. You know, they're like, they're like rats. They've taken over. And you see that story told across the entire country, multiple states, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. So you've seen tremendous changes in your lifetime. What, what is the geographical distribution of this animal? The, from a, from a Texas perspective, it's remarkable. Um, it was in a handful of counties, maybe a couple decades ago, and now it's in every single county in the state. Um, and if you look at the data from the United States as a whole, and by the way, the U S actually the world has declared, um, feral hogs as one of the 100 most disruptive invasive species on the planet. Um, and on um, the geographic range in the United States used to be maybe only 18 states. And then in 2016, a couple of decades later, it was 35 states. And now you hear it reported up to like 45 states from East coast to West coast, Mexico to Canada, out to Hawaii. I mean, they're growing fast. God, they are adaptable critters. Have you heard that phrase where people will say like, there's two landowners or there's two types of ranchers in the United States. There's landowners that have pigs and landowners that will have pigs. You ever heard that? <laughs> it sounds accurate. Yeah, it's, it's a thing. Um, okay. So why are there so many pigs? Like, how are they spreading? You know, how are, what is their reproductive capacity? What, what, is, what does that look like? Well, I think it has to do with the reproductive capacity as well as how and what situations they can thrive in. Right. So from a reproductive capacity, it's, it's pretty insane. Um, they are the highest reproductive rate of any ungulate species. Um, and what that means is they can breed year round. Their gestation period is only three, a little over three months. Um, they can have maybe up to three litters, uh, in a 14 month period, usually over two litters a year. Um, the litter size can be 15 animals, 15 little piglets. <clears throat> and those pig, little piglets can reach sexual maturity as fast as six months. So you can see how this population can just absolutely explode from a reproductive perspective, not to mention they can live up to 20 years, right? And then you compound that with the fact that they're omnivores. They can eat just about anything. They can survive in just about any temperature range. They have no natural predators. Um, they can be nocturnal and they're super intelligent. They are smarter than your household dog. So they know how to evade you. Uh, and they know how to survive in just about any condition and they can reproduce quickly and adapt and react quickly. Uh, and that's what we're seeing, man. So one sow call uh, a breeding female pig, a sow, one sow in your words, if I'm doing the math right, can have a hundred piglets by the time she's three years old. Isn't that insane? I'm so grateful that humans can't reproduce like that. <clears throat> That's some quick math to put on me. So I'm going to, I'm going to run with your number and then I'm going to blow your mind and say, now take that one generation further. And what does that number look like? Oh boy. Pull up your spreadsheet, do the math. What, what is that? That's fascinating to really think about that. You know, I, I think the, the easiest thing to look at instead of you and I trying to do funny math would just be to say, um, you know, we're, we're seeing the population of these pigs, um, potentially double every handful of years. Right. And, and, um, we're looking at a population that's probably somewhere between seven and 10 million animals right now. Um, and, and that population would have been, um, maybe half of that, uh, a decade or two ago. Okay. Actually, I'm a fan of funny math. 
and I've already told you guys, I pretty much have a PhD in bro science. And so I actually did the math after this interview on the back of an envelope. And here's what I came up with. Okay. So assuming that one sow can have a hundred piglets in three years, let's just make the further assumption that 50% of those piglets are going to be breeding females. Okay. So that means that the next generation can have over 5,000 pigs. That one sow now has 5,000 grandchildren. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. This is too much fun. So let's take this one step further. Okay, let's look at those 5,000 grandchildren. And let's assume that now 50% of those are female. Okay, so that means one generation further down the line, that original sow will now have 250,000 descendants just three years later. Could you imagine that? Can you imagine being alive as a human species and having 250,000 great grandchildren passing on your genetics, living out your legacy? Now that's some serious breeding capacity. What historically would have hunted these animals or could have controlled the population in a healthy functioning ecosystem? Well, again, nothing would have historically hunted them because they're invasive, right? They came in with European settlers a long time ago. So part of the challenge with those population numbers is that they just shouldn't be here at all. So when you when you see that many animals, it's like, okay, what's being displaced? What's being impacted? And we'll, we'll talk about some of that. But from a from a predator standpoint, you know, the only natural predator now for these animals that humans brought in is, is humans. And then from a historical context, certainly there would have been larger predators like bears and and mountain lions or cougars and wolves and a lot of these animals that as a, you know, as we've tragically talked about in other conversations, we've, you know, hunted to extinction in some areas or, or, you know, almost eliminated entirely in in, in most of the country in many cases. And so uh, there's just nothing out there besides us that can do something about this right now. Yeah. Wow. Um, maybe reintroducing packs of wolves to control the populations, but that wouldn't go over too well in like uh, metropolitan areas and probably even rural areas. Packs of wolves. That's like my romantic solution to everything, by the way. That's like a, that's a, I think a lot of people have done a lot of podcasts on that. That's a hot button topic and it would definitely, they, they could definitely handle some pigs. That's for sure. I'm definitely one person that will always advocate for reintroducing packs of wolves um, because, you know, checks and balances and ecosystems, those were like the apex predators in, in North America and throughout the world that could, I feel like they could hammer these pig populations. Um, but with that being said, that is unrealistic You know, let's talk about some of the damage that you've observed, that I've observed, some of the ecological, you know, degradation um, that's happening with these pigs, with these animals, right? And so one of the biggest things that I've observed out at Rome Ranch is the riparian area. You know, they, they don't have, these animals don't have sweat glands. And so in order for them to cool their bodies when it's, you know, 100 degrees for a couple months here in central Texas, they'll they'll wallow. And so they get really wet. They get really muddy. They tear up the ground that way. They, uh, break up, you know, intact soil root structures along creeks and rivers. And then what happens when it rains, you know, a flash flood event is you, you get erosion and you lose that very, very, um, important stable topsoil 
right? And it pollutes the water system too. That's That's been the biggest impact that I can see out at Rome Ranch. But what are some of the other, you know, ecological degradation that you've seen with these pigs? Yeah, you know, and I think riparian areas are just particularly sensitive. And, and for an animal that likes to waller and trample and, and root up, um, you start to see it, it, it moist ground is easier to disrupt. And then you get the, the, the major impact even more so of, of erosion and stuff. And you will see a lot of these things repeated in, in, in agriculture as well. But, um, you know, they just tear up native ecosystems, right? I mean, it, it could be pasture land, just like a riparian area. And, um, and or, or it could be, you know, some forest area where, you know, they're just disrupting and disturbing what should be there and, and preventing, um, uh, native life from thriving. And then also whenever that does that level of disturbance, it, it sometimes can spread and allow for habitat for other invasive species of plants or, or, or something else to, to take its place. Right. And so, um, again, it's the way that they're physically disrupting the land through the behavior that we've just talked about. It's also what they eat. Um, they eat a lot of native stuff. They root up uh, a lot of native plants, meaning they dig into the ground and, and flip it over and eat the roots of it. Um, and then, of course, trample a lot as well. And then on land erosion, just like riparian erosion area, becomes a major issue. These things are like nature's plows. They're just turning over ground. And some estimates, it's like six square feet a minute that they can just turn over better than any disc behind any tractor. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, we've had groups of 10, 12 pigs come in some of our previous farm fields that we're restoring to native perennial pastures. And it truly does look like a bomb went off. It looks like someone was throwing grenades out in that field overnight. And I mean, the amount of destruction is crazy. Like you'll be driving your vehicle, maybe not looking for this, and you'll hit some of these these ruts. And I mean, you'll practically fly out of your, your seat. I mean, they're massive damage. And um, that's just 10 pigs. So imagine if you have 20 pigs, 100 pigs, right? I mean, you could get an entire 100-acre field devastated in one night easily. And so like, what are some economic, you know, values if we, if we think about some of the damage caused to the agricultural sector in the United States or in Texas with these pigs? Yeah. The, the, the estimates and just in dollars are, um, and, and they vary, but just within Texas alone, it's hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and across the country it's, 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 it's in the billions of dollars, right? I mean, these are big animals they eat 5% of their body weight per day. Um, and then it's not just the plants that they eat, right? Just like we talked about in the ecological destruction, it's what do they trample? What do they waller, waller down? Um, what do they root up? Um, what, how much topsoil are they allowing to road off of these productive systems? And as you and I know, we don't have enough topsoil left as it is. We're doing, we're doing our own damn good job of destroying our topsoil. We don't need, we don't need help from the, the, the wild pig population. Right. And, then you can add in the cost of fencing, right? I mean, how many times you're having to repair a fence because there's a monster hole in it because a whole sounder of pigs came par- uh, barreling through. So, yeah. a sounder of pigs. That's that's awesome. We should have just pointed out that a group of pigs is called a sounder of pigs. <clears throat> that's kind of cool. It, it's a, it's a pretty interesting name, and, and and I think the the last cost I might mention is, and, and you see this, and maybe some folks listening have, but you know, whenever you're driving down the highway and a group of pigs comes by and a car hits it, the damage is basically total destruction, right? I mean, this isn't like fixing a fender. Um, so again, the, the problem is just complex and, and it affects a lot of things. Yeah. So a couple hundred thousands of dollars of damage a year. No, hundreds, hundreds of millions 
big difference of dollars of damage a year. And I've even seen that number projected in the rest of the country is, is one and a half to $2 billion right. annually throughout the United States. So that's, that's real deal. And I mean, this is coming at a time where farmers are already increasingly under tremendous pressures financially and burdens, um, with very, you know, small margins and their profitability and borrowing lots of money to stay afloat. And how, you know, how do you think this added stress impacts that small family farm? You know, I think the, the American farmer is not in a position where they are poised to handle one more barrier working against them. You know, it's the system is already set up to make things tough enough for them. Um, I'm happy to, to, to share some stats on kind of what has happened to the American farmer over the, over the last century, but, um, the system is failing them, uh, and we're losing, um, families and family farms, um, that want to, want to feed their neighbors as they wish to be fed kind of that golden rule of food, uh, at an alarming and concerning rate. All right. So what are some of those, you know, stresses that are put on the American farmer? Well, there's a lot of stresses that are put on, 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 on the farmer. Um, and at the end of the day, it just has to do with their ability to actually be able to pay their bills, you know, and, and, and it's such a, it's becoming such a hopeless endeavor that today the rate of suicide for a farmer in America is higher than the rate of a veteran returning from war. And in, just in terms of numbers, it's become so challenging to succeed that at, in, in, the, in the early 1900s, one third of the population of the country would have been these heroes on the land producing food for, for all of our neighbors and all of the population. And, and now that uh, number is in the single digits. And uh, the last few decades or so, the estimates that I've heard say that we're losing between five and 10,000 farms a year and that's families and that's that, that's their legacies and that's their identity and their sense of purpose right these are our neighbors um, that are no longer able to met, allow, allow for their ends to meet because the system is failing them and these pigs aren't making that any easier that is so unbelievable and haunting when you really take in those numbers and, and what that means and if we really want to do a gut check as consumers, let's be honest, how many of us actually know the farmer or the family that we buy our produce from? How many of us have a relationship where we know the name and, and have shooken the hands of the rancher who's, who's producing our meat? You know, statistically speaking, over 99% of Americans have never actually met a single producer, single farmer or a rancher that they currently source their life-sustaining meals from. And it's this disconnection from the source that is allowing the atrocities of industrial agriculture to exist. It's the disconnection from the land and the disconnection from the producers that is putting blinders on our entire system. And it's harming the family farm. And we're seeing catastrophic losses, up to 10,000 multiple generation farms being lost a year. And when we replace these relationships with convenience, we lose resiliency. We lose the historical legacy of our land and the connection to our natural world. In short, we lose connection with ourselves and where we're from, and we lose perception of what's valuable.
That's what happens when you replace agriculture with agribusiness. You know, you replace the community that's part of culture with profits that 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 business focus on and you lose relationships. Yeah. And and I will also say, maybe I have to retract my statement because uh, everyone probably knows the largest uh, farm landowner in the United States of America <laughs> nowadays. But they haven't met him. But they haven't met him and they probably don't want to meet him. And I hope wild pigs maybe move to his farms. <laughs> <laughs> William Gates, people. So kind of just doubling down on that agro technology industrialization model right there, right? We're going to use technology to fix all our problems. Yeah. The, um, the other thing, you know, as we're talking and we're, and you were talking about the kind of like the biological ecological damage of these pigs, you know, we, you and I are, are very familiar with the six principles of soil health, you know, Ray Archuleta, Gabe Brown, these are universal principles of how to rebuild, how to regenerate, restore ecosystems. And, and it's like, I'm, I'm thinking about those six principles and these pigs are practically doing the opposite of every single one of them. Right. And so like, let's just run through them really quick. You have uh, biological and mechanical disturbance of the soil. No bueno. What else? They're tearing up lots of plants. So they're, limiting the opportunity for there to be living plants with living roots year round where they've turned thriving pasture into eroding fields of dirt and soil. Yep. Yep. Um, you have, you know, you want to promote positive animal impact in your system, but it's really hard to graze a ruminant animal in a field without a fence or a field where all the vegetation has been rooted up and you're working with a lot of bare soil. So that makes that practically impossible. From a diversity standpoint, um, you know, again, they're eating the forage and vegetation that would be the feed for, for many native animals. So they're making life more difficult on them as well. Um, but they're also preying on um, the nests and eggs of native ground dwelling birds and, and, and reptiles. And, um, you know, again, directly becoming a predator in the system that wouldn't have historically been there. Yeah. And then when you think about another principle, which is know your context, your ecological context, your regional context, your, your spiritual or your financial context. It's like these, these animals, they're not supposed to be here historically. And so, um, it takes a lot of money, a lot of energy and a lot of effort to control them or to reframe, restructure your, your agricultural system to accommodate for them. It's a constant battle. Um, and it, it diverts energy and it diverts resources to things that, are more in alignment with you and me, which is like planting cover crops or encouraging biodiversity or creating habitat for native animals, right? It's, it counters all those efforts. Yeah. Especially with how versatile and adaptive they are and intelligent, right? So whatever we do it might have a temporary degree of efficacy, but pretty quickly they're going to respond and likely overcome whatever we've put in place to address it. Yep. There's this uh, force of nature t-shirt that I love. It's, it's probably my favorite one, but it's, it has a, a wild pig on it. It's just this gnarly boar, this razor back, and it's running around with a freaking rattlesnake in its mouth. So cool. It's so, and, and then the frame, the tagline on it is like, um, it's like save native species, eat wild pigs. Okay. That might've been my interpretation of it. 
It definitely says eat more invasive species. Yes. Which is cool. It's like, it's like conserve your land, preserve your natural resources. You know, like that's the battle cry. It's, it's like, how do you do positive for the land? Oh, you eat invasive species. And that's kind of what I want to transition to right now. So Robbie, let's talk about the solutions because this is a complex problem and you know, we go through these solutions and there's just not really a, a clear, you know, there's, there's positives and there's negatives, but hunting, how, how does hunting fit into the equation? You know, and, and especially in States like Texas, there's, there's large numbers of people that are, you know, engaging in, you know, recreation and sport hunting, um, or ne necessity hunting, right. To feed themselves and their, and their family and, and, and local, uh, community. And, um, you know, to that capacity, we're, we're hunting and, and, and utilizing native species for food. So why not do the same uh, and employ the same practice for these invasives, um, particularly these wild pigs that, um, are so tasty. Yeah. In, in Texas and in other States, you know, these are invasive species, so you can hunt them year round. You can hunt them in the day, you can hunt them in the night, you can hunt them on helicopters. What the shit? Um, have you, have you seen some of those helicopter hunts? I've seen videos. That's like the extreme iteration of hunting wild pigs. It's, it's almost like a video game, but in real life. Yeah. It's, it, it, you know, I, the part of me, the part of me that grew up playing those video games and, and, and watching movies and, you know, looks like stuff that you might see from a, a war movie from Vietnam or something like that. Um, I, I can see the action pack and, 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 and exciting nature of it. Right. But then the, the part of me that wants to respect and honor nature and animals sees, um, that, you know, these animals aren't, are, are typically being left in the field. Right. And, and, you know, they're not being respected and honored and, and they're not nourishing, um, our, our bodies. And, um, you know, I think one of the biggest tragedies of all of this as well is these, these pigs shouldn't be here and we got to address that issue, but they also didn't ask to be here. You know, they're sentient animals and they have a, um, they, they, they li they're living the best life that they can. And, you know, my, my hope and my approach to trying to address this issue would not be to allow for excessive or unnecessary suffering if we can avoid it. And I think that's the cool thing about being human is, you know, we can take on hard things, but we can do it with empathy. Yeah, absolutely. And so for those of you who are not familiar with what Robbie's talking about, there's an entire industry that's emerged where people can pay, you know, it starts off at about $2,500, but these packages can go all the way up to $10,000 to spend a couple hours on a helicopter, typically in South Texas. And you know, hang out the windows of those helicopters shooting military grade assault rifles. And, you know, you can kill 50 to a hundred pigs in just a matter of hours. And, you know, you're in a helicopter, you're not retrieving those animals. And I've even heard stories where hunters will leave those pigs out. And then that night they'll come back out and they'll shoot coyotes that are eating on those bodies. And so it's just a moment of, uh, embarrassment as being a human that we're just creating so much death and destruction on an ecosystem. You, you know, and I, I, you know, I, I think it's just hard. These things are complex, right? It's just, it can't be cut and dry. And I, you know, I feel the way I feel and I don't, I haven't, and don't participate and I don't, and I don't harbor resentment or judgment for, for somebody that, that, that does, that's their, that's their place and position. Um, and, and the reality too, is that to really be effective in controlling and mitigating, controlling populations and mitigating spread of these animals, we really have to um, eliminate an entire sounder or the whole group, 
you know, pod, whatever you want to, whatever you want to think of it as. Um, otherwise you, they respond to that amount of pressure and they move on and they actually spread more rapidly. So I get it. There's, there's a place for that. Uh, and, and, and there's some logic behind it. We can't just put our, allow our emotions to, to blind us from the, from the truth and the hard reality that we're facing. But I think there's other, there's other options as well. Yeah. So, so with hunting, truthfully, I've, I've heard that we're only managing about 2% of the population annually through hunting, which that's, that's not a ton. That's not really moving the needle when these animals can reproduce at such crazy rates. Um, the other issue with hunting is like, you're creating this market incentive for pigs to actually be trapped and then moved across state lines or moved to different counties, different regions of the country to encourage hunting as an economic industry. And so, so you're actually perpetuating the problem. You're, you're humans are indirectly, well, they're directly, but they're moving these animals. They're helping in the spread, which, uh, that's, that's no bueno. Yeah. Some, some of the, some of the stuff that I've seen, you know, you get these scientists and statics people are like, oh, they can, they on average move 7.8 miles per year and it's been blah, 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 many years. You know, I, I don't know where all that stuff comes from, but I know whenever somebody with a bad and with a bad attitude and, and, and bad intentions loads a bunch of animals up on a trailer and drives them across a handful of states and introduces them so that they can create a, an economic hunting enterprise around wild pigs. Um, it absolutely accelerates the spread. And that is, that has happened. That is unlawful. People have been prosecuted criminally for doing that. Um, and yet the incentive is there. Uh, and, and, and the problem is real. Okay. So hunting, there's some benefits and obviously there's some downside, you know, it's not the perfect solution, but there's nothing wrong with, uh, going out there, connecting with the land, harvesting your own food. And if it's a wild pig doing all the, the beautiful things for our ecosystem by removing one animal, but also eating some really nourishing meat, especially if you're able to do that in a, in a way that honors and respects the animal power to you. Like you and I did when we did it together, you know, I still probably shoot two to three wild pigs a year and eat them and feed my family with them, you know, and, or my friends and, and, and take buddies out. And so, again, I think that's a way to honor ourselves and our nature as well as these animals. Um, yeah, we were the ones who brought them here. So we should be, you know, part of the solution to controlling that population. Um, okay, let's, let's move on. So we got hunting as a, as kind of a viable solution. We're learning it's great, but it's hard to make a really big dent in the wild pig population. So, you know, lawmakers in the state of Texas, our agricultural commissioner, Sid Miller, a couple of years ago, um, approved using chemical warfare against these animals in, in the form of different poisons. That's, that's madness. I, I'm going to have, I'm going to struggle to find a positive in this. I think it's a good example of the challenge of reductionist thinking. You know, we try to we try to take complex things and and narrow it down to a series of rudimentary equations, and it doesn't always work like that. And the premise for that proposal was, you know, as an ag commissioner, we have talked about hundreds of millions of dollars in ag damage. It, sadly, they don't really care about the ecological impact of it like we do, but um, you know, just positions based off of the, the dollars and the economics of it. The idea was, hey, if we could take these chemicals, these poisons or toxins, and introduce them into the, in, in, into the population or into the, into the wild populations, 
um, of pigs, we could eliminate them at, at a much faster rate and higher scale. And, and, uh, and, you know, immediately people started coming forward and saying, hey, wait a minute, what about everything else that would be exposed? Um, you know, what about all, all of the, the small mammals and what about the birds and the reptiles and anything that would feed on a pig after it was exposed and died and had this, these, these substances in, in the flesh, right? And what about the people that might actually end up hunting these animals and so on? And, you know, the response was, oh, no, we're going to create the, this perfect little bin and only a pig will be able to get in and out of it. And then, you know, once that happens, then we just want, we don't really need to talk about what happens after that. You know, let's just bury our heads in the sand and pretend like we can just solve it with, a, with, this, with this magic pill, so to speak. Yeah, this is, you know, directly going back to that um, John Muir quote where it just, you know, you pull one string in nature and everything else is connected, right? You can't poison one animal. It doesn't work that way. This is this is the problem with uh, pesticides in general, right? And it's we know that for every undesirable insect species in a healthy functioning ecosystem, there's 1,400 predator species that could prey on that. And so... In a healthy functioning ecosystem, we have a lot of balance, right? But when we start using chemicals to declare warfare on those undesirable insect species, well, guess what? The first ones that die are the desirable ones, right? So it's just the connectedness of everything. And then you're constantly battling with these species that are very low succession, like the ticks and the mosquitoes, the things that humans are terrified of. And you're, it's just an ongoing chemistry experiment. So... I see any kind of scale the attempt at poisoning these pigs as having all the unintended consequences that have repeated itself in human history. Yeah, and and you know not not to mention and to extrapolate on your point, I think some the, the latest research shows that we're losing upwards of one percent of our insect species globally per year. So let's not let's not naively worsen that problem while trying to address a, a separate one. And, and again, going back to, you know, harm and suffering, right? The, the, the death of these animals exposed to these chemicals is, you know, like the most popular one that I heard was that warfarin example, and that's like a blood thinner. Um, and, and the effect would be to, you know, sort of liquefy their insides. Um, and man, that just sounds, that just sounds awful. It, you know, there has to be a better way than to absolutely engage in warfare on all of our native systems that we're trying to protect um, and cause unnecessary suffering if there's a more productive alternative. I'm telling you, packs of wolves. Let's just double down. Let's just go for it. Let's just go to the legislature and reintroduce red wolves in Texas. That that'd be the native wolf. I've never seen one. Or or you know we could settle for mountain lions, but there'd have to be a lot of them. Okay, the third. This one I'm really excited about, and this is one that. I know you can speak to really well, and I'm, I'm just really proud to be a part of this, but it's, it's trapping. So it's, it's trapping these pigs in their native, well, their now native wild habitat, transporting them to a USDA processing plant, and then utilizing that nourishment for a consumer to feed a growing population of humans. That is badass. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, there's a few more steps in, in, the, in the chain, right? There's individual landowners or, or, or folks who are working with individual landowners to do the trapping and then, you know, the, the, the safe transportation of those into kind of aggregation or handling centers before eventually going on to those USDA plants to be 
slaughtered under inspection to make sure that they're healthy and safe and clean and you know all the things that you would see from anything else that you buy from the grocery store right um and separately i think you know when we're talking about effective population management techniques right you know there's a lot of the latest research on how do we address this problem with these pigs um, says that you can't just pick off an individual animal at a time and you can't just poison an individual at an animal at a time you have to take the whole sounder you have to take the entire group and that the most effective way to limit the spread and the population because again if we just pick off one at a time we apply pressure and pressure, pressure will displace those animals and cause them to move more rapidly. But if you capture the entire sounder, the old pigs, the young pigs, and everything in between, um, and then you know effectively kill all of those animals, you prevent all of those the the, the, the side effects of you know, moving the herd along and allowing for future generations to develop from that grouping. Um, and that's what's happening in, in the system that you just described, right? Where we're trapping nearly entire sounders and then and then safely and humanely transporting them and then humanely ending their lives and then utilizing the product of that to feed people really healthy, nourishing food. That's so, so beautiful. I, that system works really well and it definitely aligns with my spirit and my, my values. You know, the first time I ever saw wild boar on a menu, believe it or not, I went to, it was in Europe. I went to London in 2000 and. 13 or 14 for a savory institute international conference and they have this really i mean amazing next level farmer's market there and it's just it's like a farmer's market of meat and all these amazing you know like you have your italian traditional charcuterie people you have your like swiss cheese makers you know it's like all the best things of europe tradition coming together food wise and there was wild boar everywhere every single vendor had some type of wild boar um, like in a confit and a pate, I mean, in sausage, it was incredible. And so I started talking to these vendors, you know, eating this product and it was fantastic. And I, I asked them, where, where do you guys get all these wild pigs from? And they said, Texas. I was like, what the hell? So hold on, we're in London. This is like an international, amazing market and all this wild boar that I'm consuming today is coming from Texas and shipped across the country. Why the hell are we not celebrating this resource in Texas? It's insane. It, it's so good. It, I find it to be remarkable, right? The number of people that have tried the wild boar product that we offer and have, have helped introduce and the feedback that we get, oh my God, I had no idea. It's so good. It's so rich. It's so flavorful. What, what, what makes it so special? It's interesting, right? Because again, these are just the descendants of the same domesticated pigs that we brought over here. And we talk about this a lot. And if you look at our, our agriculture system, particularly around animals, we've selectively bred these things to celebrate certain characteristics. And those characteristics don't include health or flavor, right? It's how cheaply can we get them to grow rapidly and to put on intermuscular fat, which would be a sign of being unhealthy and to be lazy so that they grow faster and don't expel energy and all these things, right? Which if you think about from an evolutionary perspective is not creating an optimal thriving animal. And yet these wild pigs are optimal thriving animals. They are the best of the best from a uh, uh, comp competition and, and um, Darwinian perspective. Um, so same genetic lineage, but animals that are actually thriving um, and they taste incredible. 
I love that, man. And I, I think there's something there that we don't appreciate and celebrate as consumers, but you're absolutely transferring energy from that animal and putting it into your own body. And, you know, it's, I don't know if you've ever seen this, Robbie, but I always feel like you can tell from an individual when you meet their dog, how that individual truly acts, you know, like if, if their dog's an asshole, well, that person's probably an asshole. If their dog is uh, obese and lazy and never gets out of the house, that person probably isn't crushing on the health spectrum either. But I think there's something to that connectivity with the food that we eat too. And that transfer of, of sentience and energy and man, I'm, I'm with you, dude. I want to eat, I want to eat the strongest, most resilient, most adaptable animals. I want to feed that to my family. I want to put that in my body and I want to harness that energy and pursue the things that I love. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm right there with you, you know, and, and, and what you and I have had to go through in our careers and what we've seen in terms of domestic livestock, tens of thousands of pigs in a sad barn held captive, eating an artificial diet, living an artificial life. Like these are sick, sedentary animals. You know, these wild, these wild animals are thriving. Um, and there's an issue that we got to address, but as far as the meat quality and the, and, and the, the spirit and energy of that animal, they are dominating their landscape. And, and that is what I want to be fueling myself with for sure. All right. So by this point in the story, I'm sure you guys are completely aligned with me. We have a serious problem, an ecological disaster that's occurring with these invasive pigs. But the good news is we also have a serious solution and this solution works at scale, right? We can consume, we can eat ourselves out of this problem. And it's interesting to think about, but wild pigs represent the very last species of free range, 100% wild land animals that can be hunted or that can be trapped at scale to feed a growing population. Now, let's put on our foodie hats and dive a little bit deeper into the brilliant culinary architecture of this animal. Let's talk to someone who knows how to prepare them, how to cook them, and how best to consume them. Eric is a meat magician, a steak savant. He's the chuck wagon chief. This is the guy that you want to be invited over to have dinner with. Now, I've worked with Eric for over 10 years, and in that time period, he has won multiple high-level competitive barbecue cook-offs. He is in charge of the research and development at Force of Nature, and Eric was my right-hand man at Epic Provisions, where we really came up with some incredible innovation in the meat bar category. Now, Eric is the only guy that I would trust to cook a $200 a pound Japanese A5 Wagyu steak. And this guy is a real life Wikipedia for cooking wild pigs. Yeah, for, from my experience, like um, a wild boar typically has more of like a richer, almost nuttier taste compared to like your traditional or conventional pork. Um, I know a lot of people kind of describe it as gamey, but I, I, I just, I, I'd lean more on like a richer, uh, almost like just more of a full body flavor, not necessarily gamey or grassy or barnyard, right? All right, Eric. So very few people have had the opportunity, or as I'd say, the pleasure of eating wild boar. Um, and there's definitely a negative connotation around consuming the animal in general. Can you 
help me better understand the rationale behind that? I think it's different. I mean, it, it, it almost kind of makes me think of like, I don't know, my, my parents' generation and my grandparents were the ones that was like, you know, don't eat it. It's they're they're not worth it. Not worth the bullet to put in them kind of thing. Um, but it's the same generation that deep fried, you know, conventional pork until it was shoe leather, right? They were scared of, of, you know, cooking it correctly, I guess. And I think, I think that's part of the problem is <clears throat> just finding, finding that outlet that works for that type of animal of, you know, a, a good marinade on a wild boar pork chop on the grill is one of the best, you know, cuts of meat I've, I've, I enjoy personally, um, or taking the legs, marinating them, uh, doing a slow braise and doing like shredded pork or, or, or something like that. I think it's just finding that right fit or finding that right seasoning blend to, to kind of marry with, uh, the protein you're using. So I think a lot of times that chefs are somewhat intimidated to, cook wild boar because it's very individualized cooking process. It's not like cooking your conventional industrial pork and you have to apply some context and some knowledge of how to best prepare a specific animal, depending on lots of variables that include the environment that it came from, what it was eating, the size of the animal, the sex of the animal. So can you kind of explain how you think through and plan and, and decide what cuts to utilize based on some of those decisions? Sure. Yeah. And, and um, you know, the smaller in weight class, I guess you go, um, typically I would, you, you could essentially use it for anything. You could slow roast, you could, um, you know, almost barbecue that thing whole and you're still going to get a tender product all the way throughout. Um, when you get up in that higher weight class, you might want to start kind of like what you talked about earlier of separating some of those cuts out of, Hey, let's, let's pull the ribs out, do them a separate way. Let's pull those legs and do them a different cook method, you know, something with a little moist heat. Um, and then your loins or your tenderloins, um, pull those out and you could do, you know, your, your high heat grill. Um, so I think again, just kind of maybe the, the larger you go in that weight class, just maybe separating those cuts out to, uh, appropriate, appropriate cook methods. All right. So how do you recommend cooking wild boar? In, in the past, like kind of growing up, we would, we'd, we'd cut out the ribs, save, save the ribs, save the pork chops, save the loins, um, and kind of do like hot and fast, you know, almost like grill season, um, summer, you know, got the grill out, do it hot and fast and, and do that for that. But, um, during the falls and fall seasons, we would, uh, we would essentially take the legs and either smoke them, roast them, braise them, something like that. And, um, we had some pretty good luck making, uh, like Salvador, Salvadorian style tamales or, um, kind of grinding it up and making wild war boudin was probably one of my favorite ways to, to use it. Oh, golly. After hearing Eric talk about his favorite ways to prepare and to cook wild boar, I mean, I started salivating on the microphone and, one of the most amazing parts of our conversation, which of course was after we had turned off the microphone, was how Eric was explaining that regionally and geographically wild boar are really unique. You get a representation of the environment of that pig. And so kind of similar to consuming wine or coffee or chocolate, there's different notes that are representations of the season, of what that pig was foraging on. It could be things from 
acorns, to pecans, to mesquite beans, to roots, and to bugs that this animal finds in the soil. And what I really admire about wild boar is that it honors the seasonality of the animal. And it has really unique characteristics. No two pigs will ever taste the same. And and we've been conditioned as consumers to expect consistency above all else at the expense of all else with the flavor of our meat, where I don't really want consistency. I want that animal to be eating seasonally in a diet that's regionally available and to take on those characteristics and the notes of that ecosystem because it connects me to that animal. It connects me to the land and to the season. And I really appreciate that. And I admire that. And I think that makes eating wild boar fun because no two animals will ever taste the same. Now let's connect back with Robbie and bring home the bacon. With Force of Nature, I mean, I'm just so proud of the work that we've done and we've been able to accomplish with specifically our wild boar program and the product that we're making. And so how has that been in your mind with consumers and what are the, what's the challenge and the, and the barrier to get this into people's hands? Yeah, I think I'd just start by by pointing out a, a really key thing. Like our intention is not to support and promote the proliferation of these invasive species, right? Like we would like to see them eliminated from the landscape. Um, and so I don't want to build an enterprise that's contingent upon that population sustaining or growing. Um, however, we haven't found a practical solution to reverse this trend. And everybody's, you know, many people in this field are working on it, us included. And to the extent that the population and the, and the problem continues to be worsening, um, we at force of nature have, have taken the approach of, Hey, let's try to generate as much demand as possible to justify pulling these animals off the land in a humane and, and ethical way and feeding them to as many people as possible. Um, and so I, I think that's the, that's the solution. That, that's, that's the approach that we're taking. And again, as we talked about moments ago, we, you know, we're trapping the entire sounder. We're following the science we're using. Um, and supporting what tends to be the most effective methods at population control and and then putting these out into the market so more and more consumers can become aware that there's this incredible source of food out there that has this uh, great culinary um, opportunity and use and experience. Um, and the demand is incredible. It's one of our most popular items, um, you know, all over the country in retail and all over the country where we deliver direct to people's doors. They're ordering this stuff. They love it. The feedback is, again, overwhelmingly positive. Um, and, you know, it's become so popular that, you know, we're having to figure out how to continue to scale more trapping, more aggregating, more harvesting to keep up with the degree to which people are are voting with their dollars to say, "Hey, this I, I'd like I'd rather have these animals over over the sick, sad pork I've been eating." That's incredible, and th and that's just a true testament to the power of consumers, right? Companies like Force of Nature, they're only going to make products that consumers want, and the fact that consumers do want to support this system, do want to conserve and preserve restore land, remove invasive species. I mean, you guys are making an impact every single time you purchase a product like this. And so that that's encouraging to me. It's, it's It goes back to the consumers having all the power in this system to drive such positive change. Force of nature, we're just the catalyst. We're, we're helping to facilitate this, but it, it's just harmonious. This is how it should be. And it's crazy that no other meat companies have figured this out or tapped into that. 
most from a historical perspective, most meat companies are, 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 are working aggressively to use consumers, right? Consumers are a, a very important and integral part of their model, their industrial mechanized model. Hum, humans become consumptive machines. Um, and so long as we are willing to just sit passively by and eat what they tell us to eat, when they tell us to eat, how they tell us to eat it and believe all the lies they feed us, we're feeding right, we're playing right into the model and we're playing a really critical role in sustaining these really vicious systems that succeed at our expense. And yet we still have this incredible independent autonomous ability to stand up and say, fuck that noise. I'm going to choose differently. I'm going to take a different path. I'm going to stand up for what I believe in and you believe whatever you want. You don't have to believe what you and you and I are talking about and what we stand for, but you have that right and you have that opportunity to listen, to pay attention and to choose a different path and to, to vote differently and to replace that vicious cycle um, that you're a part of with a more virtuous one. And you know that's what I'm excited to give people the opportunity to do. Okay, so this is how the story ends. Now, if we want to talk about invasive species that are destroying entire ecosystems, that are destroying an entire planet... We don't have to look very far. We we only have to look in the mirror, right? We human beings are the most destructive invasive species in North America. So while we wage war against wild pigs, don't forget, we are the ones who brought them here. We need to be reminded that waging war against Mother Nature never works out very well for us. While there's tremendous value in understanding the ecological context and history of your region, we're at a point in time where we need to surrender the romantic notion of what our land once was. You see, everything is evolving, everything is changing, and at this point in time, the change is happening faster than any other point in history. Living alongside wild pigs is now the new normal, and I hate to break it to you, but we're not going to win that battle. As I accept the changing landscape and coexisting alongside wild pigs at Rome Ranch, I'm comforted by one of the greatest lessons I ever learned as a rancher. And this was taught to me by one of my mentors. And that is, it's better to focus on the things that you want to see, the things that you desire, versus obsess or focus on the things that you don't like. If we can focus our energy on restoring the ecosystem in a way that promotes plentiful biodiversity, or in a way that returns apex predator species to the lands that they once roamed, those are two things that positively change my perspective and my relationship with an ecosystem. So let's focus our positive light. Let's cast a vision of hope with energy, with love, with intention. And last but not least, let's fill our bellies with the bounties and the nourishing energy of wild pigs. Now that was a fun episode to curate. And to celebrate wild pigs, to celebrate brilliant, vibrant ecosystems, I'm going to eat wild boar tonight for dinner. And I'm going to do that to honor my guest as well. So thank you. Kasparis Sampson and thank you Eric Rasmussen 
You guys are champions of life. And if you are inspired by this episode, or if you enjoy this podcast, please head over to forceofnature.com and have some wild boar shipped directly to your front door. Now, the best way to start off is going to be filling your basket with some regular wild boar ground meat and then taking your favorite existing recipe, but swapping out whatever animal protein you typically put in it with ground wild boar and really taste the difference, really taste the flavor of this healthy, resilient, stunning animal. And that's all for today. So thank you guys. Until next time, farewell.